0: Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
2: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: So Tracy, you know, every once in a while, um, I feel like every few months we have to do like a uh, like a sort of macro episode. I mean, we talk about topics and macro, but it's also good to just sort of take stock of like where we are right now with the economy, Fed and markets.
2: Yeah, that's fair enough. But I feel like at this moment in time, I mean, I should mention we're recording on March 15th. Uh, there is a Fed meeting coming up, so maybe things will change. But at this moment in time, the macro environment is really interesting because, of course, we've seen this big yeah. backup in yields, which has impacted stocks. And now we're watching out to see what the central banks actually do about it.
0: Yeah, it is a very interesting environment for exactly that. In addition to uh, the backup in rates, We've seen this fairly dramatic rotation, the likes of Mm -hmm. which we haven't seen for a while, where we have a lot of like banks and energy companies leading the way. And a lot of the tech darlings for the last year, if not the last decade, arguably uh, pretty, pretty severely underperforming. We're seeing this commodity boom ongoing, something that we recently talked about with uh, Jeff Curry. Uh, We're seeing uh expectations continue to get ratcheted up for what growth is going to look like in 2021 and maybe 2022. So we're definitely like at a turning point, which makes a uh, of some sorts, which makes a good time to like take stock of the macro right now.
2: Yeah. And I guess whenever you have these big turning points in markets or when it feels maybe like you're seeing a turning point in market, the question always comes up about how you should actually position for it. And it does seem in this particular environment. I, I don't know how you feel about it, but like I feel that it's more difficult than normal. I guess because bonds are selling off because people are positioning for growth, and at the same time, all the stock market winners that we've seen for the past couple of years are also selling off. So I don't know. It feels a little bit tricky at the moment if uh, if you're in charge of allocating assets.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for the last for a long time. You could have had a real, like, sort of set it and forget it port- portfolio, like a sixty mm-hmm. forty type thing, where you have a bunch of stocks, you have a bunch of treasuries, and you just don't worry about it. But a, there's a lot of talk that maybe the treasury component isn't going to work that well, especially yeah. in an environment that's reflationary, higher rates, that has impact on the stocks. So there is a uh, a broad reckoning, or at least questioning, of whether a lot of the strategies that have worked well for a very long time, longer than a decade, really. Uh, are just going to continue to be so easy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the good news for us is that we're just journalists. And so we don't actually have to answer (laughs) these questions ourselves because it's not our job to get it right. That's true. But our guest, this is a very special episode today. So our guest uh, not only used to be a journalist, but actually used to work for uh, me and you, Tracy.
2: This episode makes me very happy because we're going to have one of our old colleagues on and uh, not only was he an excellent journalist, but he's gone on, I think, to be an excellent strategist at a real bank. And it's really nice when you see someone <laughs> who, has, who has expertise in markets who sort of translates that expertise into, uh, I guess, something other than writing about it and actually takes an active uh, role or position in it, yeah. putting theory into practice.
0: Right. So we just write about it. We just talk about it. But our guest today used to do that. And now he actually has to make these calls. Uh, so we're going to be speaking with uh, Luke Kawa, our longtime colleague. He is an asset allocation strategist at UBS Asset Management. We reference his work a lot. We talk about his business. We cover ones, which will probably come up
3: today. Luke, thank you very
0: much for joining
3: us. Guys, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. And the, the warm, fuzzy feelings are, are very much mutual here.
0: Oh, uh, so is this a tough time? Like, as Tracy set out, like, does this seem like a particularly sort of tricky moment for thinking through problems in the question of uh, asset allocation?
3: I mean, this is the thing about uncertainty, right? It's always supposed to be above average. But uh, at the at the risk, at the risk of, uh, you know, contradicting Tracy, which I guess I'm allowed to do now, it's uh, it almost <laughs> seems that one of the one of the more difficult parts uh, right now dealing with this environment is is letting it fully play out. We know that we have, you know, some incredible fiscal stimulus in the pipeline. We're pretty sure we have, you know, sustained monetary support over a a reasonable enough forecast horizon. So now it's a lot about just making sure you know the fundamentals are still aligned with with your thesis coming into this year and you know so far I think I think that's that's been the key. And if you look at kind of the current environment we're in something that it reminds me of a lot not in macro implications but in terms of just letting it play out would be the kind of the mid 2014 oil shock whose ramifications in terms of you know how what it did to what it did for bond yields what it did for commodities generally commodity currencies that that essentially lasted for like an 18 month period in which it was a chief catalyst for performance across the board right now that's that's kind of how i'm envisioning the the degree of fiscal that's in the system right now and the kind of earnings rotation that's that it's supporting underlying underlying markets.
2: So I have a ton of questions just based on that. But I, I think maybe to begin with, we have to start with your, uh, or at least talk about it a little bit, your transition to uh, the real world, you know, moving away from journalism, actually uh, putting what you write about in practice. Like, what made you want to do that to start with? And obviously... <laughs> Obviously, you can avoid saying uh bad things about Bloomberg, but uh, you know why were you interested in in making that switch?
3: I yeah, and nothing nothing but uh, nothing but love on my end for former and current uh, current employers on that front. But uh, yeah I, I think it just uh, there there was time in my in my career where I wanted to you know, definitely take a take a learning step and you know figure out whether kind of my ideas and the way I thought about things could. Uh, you know could translate into the real world but also to uh you know to start fresh again and be the definitely be the dumbest guy in the room and that's that's a position i i relish and i enjoy and i'm in in every meeting i'm in so just the ability to really uh to learn to rewire my brain and to you know to solve problems on a on a more prolonged basis because i think you know one of the things with uh with journalism that's fun and exciting and what i what i loved about it when i was doing it is that when you when you go in every day, you have really no clue what you're doing? The market is going to dictate how, what you're doing and you know whether whether you're covering commodities that day or options or bonds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I do like the idea of of a little more structure and working to solve problems where you know the half-life and the payoff period is going to be longer than that one day, where we're going to have some staying power, where we're going to be building results for, for our clients together over a prolonged period of time. So that's something that really appealed to me and you know I I love the people I worked with when I was at Bloomberg and I love the the team I'm on here.
0: So talk through a little bit more of the process. I mean, it's one thing to like have calls, right? It's like okay, rates are going to rise or commodities are going to continue to rally or whatever. But obviously to make a call like that, you have to have some sort of like deeper, you know, something has to precede that, some sort of like process for incorporating new information into a call. Talk to us about how you and your colleagues begin to think through these problems, translating inputs in the markets, in the economy, in policy, and turning them into the question of um, you know, decisions on asset allocation, basically.
3: Yeah, so I think there's a really actually good tie into to journalism here, because I, I think Bloomberg, the interview question you're always asked, I think there is, what are the most important Things as a journalist and its accuracy and accuracy are the two most important, is I think what you're supposed to answer. And then when it, uh-huh. when it comes to investing, I, I think the, the answer there would be accuracy and asymmetry. So you know, essentially what we're trying to do is, is trying to identify convex opportunities that are based on underlying macro themes we expect to play out. Now, what is something that provides you know, the convexity or the outsized return? or the the best expression of a thesis, so to speak, it's probably going to be a combination of both valuation and catalyst, so it's it's really working working through and doing doing the work to identify uh, you know assets that do appear undervalued and that we do believe have like a reasonable macro case to expect these valuation gaps to remedy based on an improvement in the underlying fundamentals and I think that's key it's not just. Hoping that this valuation gap will close. If you have that, but you don't have the here's how part. And that's what we spend a lot of our time doing. It's easy to, it's easy to kind of identify and just know where the valuation gaps are. How you avoid value traps is really finding that catalyst and making sure it'll be there within a reasonable period of time. So you have your, your margin of safety built in on valuation and you have your catalyst that provides for, for meaningful upside exposure.
2: The catalyst point is interesting because I I always thought that this is probably one of the things that I, I would certainly struggle with if I made the switch. You know, it's one thing to write you think rates are too low or that the dollar is mispriced or something, but it's a whole other thing to actually come up with an actionable trade based on that idea. And the other thing I've been thinking about is you could argue that, you know, markets get stuff wrong. Um, although I guess some people would take issue with that. But you could argue that markets, you know, stay irrational longer than than you can say solvent, things like that. That's probably why the catalyst becomes so important. But how do you sort of deal with that aspect of it, especially in recent months or years? We have seen this frothiness in markets, and you can say that valuations are way too high, but they can just keep going up and up and up without, you know a catalyst on the horizon.
3: I think this is something that plays in very well to the kind of the the biggest debate that you alluded to uh, in the in the preamble which is essentially the the growth versus value trade mm. right now because I, I think that you know that essentially is a good uh, parallel for for you know what underlies your question there and for the longest time you could say well you know these these valuations are getting to the most stretched since the dot com bubble et cetera et cetera at a certain point this is going to snap back the the situation we have here and people can people can point to the rates market as a you know as a catalyst for this rotation or as accentuating this rotation when you really look at this under the hood it's it's just the fact that the earnings the bottom line for value stocks are expected to grow at a faster pace than growth stocks for the first time in in quite quite a while so if you look at finally getting the catalyst to realize some of that uh some of that outperformance and that's you know that's unlocked by vaccinations that's unlocked by fiscal stimulus. So right now, I, you know, I, I view that as much more fundamental to the, the cause of value versus growth performance than, than the rates market. If you're going to run like correlations for three-month rolling performance of uh, NASDAQ versus S&P 500 versus the movement in 10-year rates or real rates, you're not going to get incredibly strong signals. That's, uh, it's a bit of a, you know, a quasi-myth. So it's it's really looking into what's been driving the outperformance. Is it the earnings growth, and do we expect that's reversed? And that's that's our view that based on just the the amount of fiscal stimulus in the in the system, a given vaccinations laying the the groundwork for a return to economic normality, that that's going to happen. And so that's the that's the kind of scenario that I'm talking about, just letting it play out because the earnings in this case are the catalyst. And you know, come late this year, midpoint of this year, we'll be talking about okay how can this be sustained do we have the policy action to sustain this or are we going to migrate back into the into the regime we have before and that's when you you return to monitoring your policy milestones and try to you know attempt to attempt to discern the tea leaves here
0: i mean you you basically anticipated my next question so 2021 expected to be blistering fast growth. I mean, we might get, I think I've seen estimates for like potential GDP growth of like 8% for the year. It's like going to be something nuts because the reopening, the vaccine, the stimulus, I think 2022 will probably have some of that and also be uh, pretty decent. But then there's the question about what's next. So how do you start thinking about, as you say, those policy milestones and the degree to which they'll sort of like continue to affect the like What's next? Whether value continues to outperform? What are you like? Getting, what are you? What are you going to be thinking about? Or thinking ahead? What are you going to be thinking about for the end of 2021 in terms of
3: that? What's next? I think the important part is not to not to think ahead too much. Not to not to think yeah. too fast. Like the uh, kind of the the biggest mistake that could be made in the in the coming months is essentially saying, okay, we've had peak policy support what's next the the kind of the kind of show me story and using that as a reason to get you know bearish when you know we know it's a it's a popular uh to quote another of our former colleagues sam Rowe you know stocks usually go up that's the that's the thing so i i think you know, importantly kind of anchoring anchoring on that and realizing that you know as long as we're still expected to get earnings growth it's just you know a matter of making sure you're on the right side of, of the rotation but in terms of things to watch i think uh you know, an encouraging development lately has been the degree of Chinese policy support that hasn't really contracted as significantly as uh, you know some may have feared coming into the year. That's, that's removed a, a, pretty, a pretty key downside risk. Uh, second would be the, the continuation of U.S. fiscal support, not only through the anticipated infrastructure bill that we you know, think Congress will begin to work on soon and, and hash out over the course of the year, but also whether some of the, the provisions... And the most recently passed 1.9 trillion stimulus are actually extended and made more permanent. Those, those kind of things, they, they do add up and they just do show that the policy boat is you know, continuing to, to move in the right direction. And that, that allows kind of the, the more cyclical traits to continue to have the, the wind at their back.
4: Investing involves risk including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors LLC.
2: Um you mentioned China there and I I do want to get into that but um before we do may, maybe if I just ask a bonds question that would be a, a good segue into it. We're talking about how stocks uh in the long run tend to go up but I I'm curious how you feel about bonds at the moment cuz I I imagine you know if you're in the business of asset allocation I just don't think selling, you know, a big position in US Treasuries is that um I don't know, it can't get people that excited at the moment, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really it doesn't really work to um to offset losses in stocks anymore or at least it hasn't this year. The yields are incredibly low. It's just very very hard to see the attraction in US debt at the moment. So how are you feeling about the role of uh, you know U.S. Treasuries in a portfolio.
3: Well, I I think bonds full stop do still play you know, an important role in portfolios, and U.S. Treasuries due to like think think about the nature of the quote unquote shock, and I'm you know, using air quotes on that because we're still pretty much even at all time highs after this this rate shock, and it's the thing about bonds is that they aren't intended to hedge the shock. They're intended to hedge the the downside shock to growth. And that's something that you know we were we were able to to overcome and, and deal with last year. And bonds, you know, performed pretty well throughout that. I think you can say, especially after the the liquidity crisis stages of uh, of the COVID shock has passed. But right now, from from our point of view at, at UBS, we're under we're underweight uh, global duration, and that's just based on the view that you know we're getting a, we're getting a recovery, and bond yields haven't fully priced in the the magnitude of the the recovery or the about or the amount of growth we're we're about to get that's in the pipeline but you know being underweight bonds doesn't mean kind of abandoning them completely so that's that's the kind of the role we see the the give and take it's certainly not a time in our view to be to be overweighting bonds we prefer equities to bonds we prefer credit to bonds so that's that kind of gives you a sense of of where we are positionally
2: so, just on the idea of bonds as a diversification play and the fact that you mentioned the Chinese economic performance uh recently and the fact that monetary policy hasn't been as tight as maybe some people were worried that it could be, how do you see Chinese bonds at the moment because I gotta say like one of the things that we've been watching out here um in Asia is the enormous inflows that we've seen into Chinese government debt in. 2020 and 2021. Like it's just such a step change in China's position in investment portfolios and also in the global financial system, because it's getting very close to moving from an exporter of capital to an importer of capital. And that's just really interesting to see. So I'm curious from an investment strategy perspective, what's going on with Chinese debt? Like what is the attraction right now?
3: I think the attraction starts with just the the most simple component, and that's that's the yield premium relative to the rest of the world. So essentially coming into this coming into this year, you had you know the Chinese 10 year at a near record premium to G3 yield. So that that in itself is going to drive attention, especially with central banks signaling at the time that you know we nobody was anticipating the kind of the results we got in Georgia or for yields to move the way they had. So that's something that just off the hop is going to naturally lead people to gravitate towards a you know a higher yielding solution. But I, I think a, a deeper part of this, and this is something that uh, it's part of a collection that uh, me and my colleagues have written called Upgrade Your Asset Allocation. And the the second paper in this series deals with uh, enhancing diversification in the context of a low yield world. So how are you going to make sure portfolios are, are well buffered in an environment where bonds might be at an effective lower bound, which... You know, Still, an interesting part of the COVID shock is that no central bank took rates more negative to deal from it. So it seems like you know the appreciation of that policy tool might uh, might be might be fading in its uh, in its role going forward. And so when we looked across the spectrum of different uh, different fixed income instruments, we just believe that Chinese bonds, because of the yield premium and because of the the economic maturity, uh, the People's Bank of China has now a reasonable history of being able to move uh, move counter cyclically. So you know, enable to you know ease when, when conditions are bad and tighten when conditions are getting better. That kind of supports the the stock bond correlation you would like to see and helps you have faith that it will be there in the future. But I think what's more important is what Tracy just mentioned: the fact that Chinese bonds are getting all of these inflows and receiving all of this, uh, you know, all this more institutional adoption and appreciation is something that itself will perpetuate and kind of reinforce this, uh, this negative correlation between, uh, between stocks and Chinese bonds in particular. Because if you look at also the, you know, if you go through the growth shocks or the, you know, any reasonable pullbacks we've had in the past few years, it's, you know, China, the 2015-16 China deval, obviously Chinese component, yields go down during this and global stocks go down. Early 2018, the, you know, the Volmageddon experience, not clearly not a China matter, but uh, yields down materially for 2018 not really a china story you can you know argue it might be about trade maybe not but yields down a lot during that and covid is certainly a story that uh, you know China was first into from an economic and uh, risk market perspective and yes yields down so if you're trying to tell any story about the the global economy and you know macroeconomic cycles and ebbs and flows it's very likely that China is going to be a mover and shaker in that story so it's you know it's Very likely that beyond the yield premium they offer, Mm. that the negative correlation will still be there. That's super interesting.
0: So you you mentioned something early on in that answer. I want to go back to, which is we didn't see any major central banks go deep into negative rates during this crisis. Um, And what we have seen, at least in the U.S. context, is that you know in lieu of perhaps more monetary easing, we've had this something of a, a handoff to fiscal that people have been talking about for a long time. A are negative rates as a policy tool likely done, like sort of discredited or not likely to be pursued again? And B, more broadly, does it change the business of asset allocation to think about a world in which there is this policy asymmetry and we're more likely to get um, a a fiscal impulse as opposed to just a monetary one
3: uh, when there's a downturn? So on on the negative rates question, I guess, I mean the the only thing that keeps me from you know in my view saying that it's definitely going the way of the the woolly mammoth is the bank of england uh, that would be kind of the only thing that gives me gives me pause because they do seem to be at least laying the the groundwork in in the financial system to to do that if needed and it's a it's a real consideration but that could also be part of the you know the ben bernanke constructive ambiguity when it comes to negative rates even talking about them is a is a form of forward guidance that can kind of help keep the the front of the curve well anchored and uh, and well behaved. When it when it comes to the the policy asymmetry point, I think it, I think it plays out in in two important ways. One is again, you you reasonably might not be able to expect bonds to deliver the same degree of performance uh, during risk off that they have in the past, just because of the lower starting point. So that's that's a mathematical kind of construct there. When you move to the the handoff to fiscal, I think that. That's where it moves more into the realm of, of equity rotation and equity risk premium. So uh, if, we're, if we're moving in into, into an environment where policymakers have said, hey, we've discovered the real solution to counter cyclical policy. It's, it's giving people money. It's you know, giving businesses money. It's making sure uh, that uh, you know, liquidity crises don't morph, in, morph into solvency crises. And actually, we do that role better than central banks do it. We're going to continue this playbook going forward. What does that do to the cyclicality of earnings for cyclical companies? And in my view, this is something that would make them less cyclical if we're going to constantly underwrite the business cycle using fiscal policy. So the valuation gap that we talked about earlier between value and growth, if you also you know, kind of just reframe that as cyclical versus defensive, if you're right. less worried about the cyclicality of earnings for cyclical companies because mm-hmm. of fiscal policy taking a more muscular role that's something that can act as a conduit to, over time, huh. that valuation discrepancy narrowing.
2: Sorry. So just on that point, I mean, it, you mentioned uh, the 1970s oil crisis. So I, I'm just curious, as the shift from monetary policy to fiscal stimulus gets underway, how are you thinking about, this is such an obvious question, but how are you thinking about inflation?
3: So it's, uh, there's, uh, inflation is a show me story still, right? Like, the Fed has mm. essentially told us that 2021 inflation is not, is not something they're going to react to. It's, uh, you know, the Fed, Jerome Powell is, is the 2011 Fed, Ben Bernanke looking through inflation, not the 2013 Fed of kind of, you know, preemptive setting off a taper tantrum. So that's, so the reactivity of financial markets to near-term inflation outcomes, I think we've been, we've been well prepared for that. And you see that already in the, in the backup in yields we've had. Uh, looking forward over a long period of time. And I know Joe loves to post charts of essentially a bunch of core inflation measures that are just hanging out close to, but not above 2%. So that's the history we're fighting. But that was a history that we had in the context of monetary policy doing all the lifting. So it's you know Sisyphus posting the boulder up the hill, monetary policy can't do it on its own, boulder back down, we try it again. This time it's different because you know Hercules is pushing the boulder too. Yeah, fiscal policy much more on board, so it's it's a wait and see and monitor because you know at this point we can't judge the degree of fiscal stimulus and how long it'll be there. What we can do is look at okay, what kinds of realized inflation outcomes would really cause us to re-examine the stock bond correlation and the you know the potential negative effect on portfolios. And so a, a couple of my colleagues, uh, Michele Gambera and Louis Finney. Have done some great work on this. And what they found is that the, the point where the, the correlation flips, where you should be very, very worried, or at least concerned, or taking steps to monitor you know, that the bond part of your portfolio isn't providing the protection you might think it is, is when core CPI is, has averaged 2.5% for a 36-month period. So if you think about that in the context of average inflation targeting, that's that's almost what we're looking for. So we're almost targeting basically getting back to a to the point where bonds might not be providing good protection, but you know still might also be. So we're going to be flirting with that line under a policy success regime.
0: This is super interesting and super important. I also want to note again, we are recording this uh, Monday, March fifteenth. Um, by the time you'll have listened to this, we will have had a Fed meeting, the context of which is partly. This backup in rates, growing economic optimism, but this general sense that this doesn't change much yet for the Fed. How confident are you generally that this really is, well, as you put it, the twenty eleven Fed right now, or certainly not the uh, the twenty eighteen Fed in its willingness to tolerate a level of inflation and tolerate a drop in the unemployment rate? That doesn't make them nervous in a way that we didn't see um,
3: with the Fed pre-crisis. I can I can tell you things that will make me more confident in that going forward. I, I okay. think just on a, on a basic level for the inflation point, it's it's almost as if all this the policy review was for naught unless it produces some kind of concrete change in the Fed's reaction function. So that that in itself there's there's some sunk costs into this new framework that does suggest that. Uh, Yes, it will continue to be an operable one that produces different results than the, than the previous economic cycle. So I think uh, you know, from, a, from a starting point, that's a, that's a good place to anchor to. What going forward, I think what would increase my confidence that this is really a, a different Fed, and you hear, you hear Fed members talk about this fairly often, they're talking about more economic metrics outside of the unemployment rate that's in the, that's in the summary of economic projections. They're talking about uh, the employment to population ratio. They're talking about uh, how labor market outcomes are, are unequal based on race. And that you know, that is something that over the, the fullness of time, a hot labor market can start to correct. If the Fed gave us in their, in their dashboard and their summary of economic projections, uh, the outlook for how some of those variables are expected to unfold and suggested that those are what's moving into being targeted as measures a full employment i think that would very much increase my confidence that uh, there won't be kind of the there won't be as much of a preemptive tightening and we won't be you know we won't be tightening even as soon as we see the whites of inflation's eyes but we can we can see a little more than that we can see the iris and the pupil
2: so you've talked um or you've mentioned a couple of times now this idea of waiting and seeing how durable the fiscal policy response actually is. And this is something that I've thought about at various times throughout the years, but how, how difficult is it as an investment strategist or, you know, as an analyst or something like that, to be gauging policy and to be looking at economic policies through a political lens? And I I remember the first time this came up was in the context of the European Union and the eurozone debt crisis. There you know everything hinged on what the EU would actually do and what sort of political will there was for burden sharing or fiscal austerity and that sort of thing. And it just seemed really really difficult if you were a strategist who was basing their decisions on, you know, actual fundamentals to suddenly switch to trying to figure out what a certain politician was thinking and how they were playing to their base and what political calculations they were making. So I'm curious, like, how difficult or easy is it to incorporate political motivations and machinations into your investment thesis?
3: I I think it's incredibly difficult because, as you kind of alluded to, your biases will, will tend to creep in and infect the process. And I think that's where, you know, Being a being a global bank and I'm I'm on a global team, this is where that that really comes in handy because you do have more kind of boots on the ground, closer to home, domestic knowledge in, in pretty much every market. So I think as a starting point, that's very helpful. And beyond that, it's recognizing your your limitations, recognizing that I'm not I'm not a congressional analyst. I'm not a political analyst, but I talk to people who are. It's it's still doing that research, doing that work. And that's where there's so much symbiosis, I think, between between news and uh and asset management. We we rely on the we rely on good reporting. We're we're around the desk. We're sharing Tracy Alloway or or Steven Spratt or occasionally Joe Weisenthal articles and discussing <laughs> the information in this and whether it's whether it's changing our priors, whether it's changing our views, whether it's changing our thesis. So I think it's it's a lot of humility. It's knowing what you don't know. It's knowing that. There's someone around you who has a better idea than you do, deferring to them and then continuing to seek out corroborating evidence from actual experts on the subject.
4: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common...
0: This might be a good time to pivot a little bit to uh, journalism. Uh, We mentioned in the beginning, uh, we sometimes cite your work here at Bloomberg. And I think uh, just over a year ago, I think it was last February, right before the crisis hit, you kind of had this legendary Business Week cover when the bull market gets weird about what was then the sort of nascent thing, which has grown way bigger, uh, about the role of sort of Robin Hood and Wall Street bets and This thing that's really taken on a life of its own. Talk to us about um, when you think about impact on portfolio, thinking about portfolios and impact on the markets, how the introduction of this new phenomenon of this really intense retail participation, call buying, meme stocks, all kinds of stuff like that, that has become very mainstream in the last year. How it uh, how it intersects with your broader thinking about uh, portfolios and how markets behave?
3: Yeah, I've got to say it was uh, this. This was the moment in time where I think my you know my brain had been successfully rewired. When you when you see some of this activity, and then you you immediately don't go, okay, I need to check this or that forum. It's okay. Like, how is this going to affect the the broader market <laughs> ecosystem? So, kind of from the highest highest possible level of view. If we're going to have a a new material source of funds generally entering the market, that's this. This is going to put downward pressure on the equity risk premium. This is going to be kind of positive for asset valuations. So from that high level perspective, that's the that's the first order from which I I would view it is that this increased uh, these increased flows from this cohort is positive for equities. Full stop. The uh, the increased kind of footprint of this of this cohort, the higher turnover. And I think what we saw at the end of January, it's, it's a reminder to me about how a lot of the, the pullbacks we've gotten in recent years, are, you know, they really do have a liquidity accelerant kicker here. And so from an asset management perspective, if we're able to identify a situation where sharply swinging flows are what's essentially driving the move in headline markets, and the, the fundamentals haven't changed a bit. Well then, there's there's a pretty good opportunity for us. That's the that's the the valuation and the catalyst that's opened up thanks to these flows. We can expect that to, to remedy, and you know, therefore that that's an opportunity. I, I think another element that's really unique to retail participation is is the timing. The fact that this came about during a period in which buybacks obviously fell tremendously because of profitability and because of you know uh, regulatory. Rules and uh, it was a time when you know, the macro economy was not doing well. So I think this leads to a bit of a you know an overfocus on retail, which you know, certainly you can you can see the visible footprint. But it's important like not to be doing partial equilibrium analysis here. You, we also do have to consider how you know how flows are going to you know, improve from buybacks, how flows might improve from more autopilot flows as uh, you know as employment does grow. And so you know that's that's something in in a wholesome manner that's kind of how we we think about it.
2: Sorry, I got to ask this is a slightly flippant question but uh, one thing that I've said about the GameStop phenomenon and Wall Street bets is this idea of flows before pros. So that idea that money can sort of, um, I guess, trump the economic fundamentals. And at some point, you know, asset prices that used to be self-limiting because at some point valuations would just be excessive now can kind of keep going forever because it's the momentum that really matters to investors. People are just trying to catch the next wave. I'm very curious or sorry, let me rephrase that. I'm wondering now that you're a pro at UBS, um, how, how do you feel about the flows like what's it like internally at u b s when you see something like you know gamestop rising to four hundred dollars?
3: This is where kind of the you know, we're we're very top down oriented and don't do kind of anything related to single stocks and that's sure. where this this is where it helps here is that you can see that you know, clearly in in late January you're having dislocations and you're having headline indexes decline because of flows related to retail trading and associated dele- deleveraging. Nothing about the fundamentals changed for the, you know, for the better or worse. And very soon thereafter, all-time highs again. So thinking about it from the index level perspective, it, it doesn't seem that these, you know, that these flows are kind of overpowering the fundamentals at any point in time. Might that be true at the, at the single stock level? That's mercifully something I don't, uh, I don't have to have an opinion on anymore. <laughs>
2: Okay, so we're talking a lot about flows and how you actually pitch investment strategies uh, once you become a professional strategist. So another thing that's been really hot this year is or in recent years really is ESG and, you know, environmentally and socially friendly investments. And I have to admit that I've become very cynical about it probably because I receive at least eight emails a day and, you know, 10 <laughs> other press releases about someone starting an ESG fund or how a particular bank is is doing something new in ESG, whatever. It seems like the thing, the bandwagon that everyone really wants to hop on. How How is that playing out at UBS or, you know, how, how are you approaching it? Like, is it something that you're pitching because clients are demanding it or is it something that you're pitching because it feels like the right thing to do or that i don't know how to phrase this i guess i'm just curious uh, how how you all are thinking about esg at the moment and how much of it is uh a trend for better or worse
3: when i when i think about esg and this is what i'm primarily going to kind of focus on is that uh there's a, a paper again. I'll I'll give Michaela Gambera another shout out because he's he's it's uh, in the process of uh, of review, but another paper that I'll try not to cannibalize or preempt too much. It's about how do we how do we think about and incorporate ESG into the asset allocation process? Because I, I think the a big underlying question to this is 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 there a trade-off if you think this is a if you think this is a fad, if you think this you know doesn't produce optimal return results. What are, the, what are the associated costs? Are there any? And there's, you know, there's precious few academic studies or, or work on this. And you know, Michaela is, is among the first in this field. And so how we're viewing it is that uh, the traditional kind of investment process, you're balancing risk and return. With ESG, you're adding a time dimension, and you're also adding preferences that, that are going to... The preferences are going to guide the investment universe, and that could be by kind of regulatory fiat. Or that could be because of you know the the values of uh, you know of certain boards, firms, endowments, etc. And the the time dimension is I think something uh, you know, something interesting. It's the idea that more and more ESG is much less a you know here's here's something we would like to encourage by kind of by rules, by flows, etc. And it's going to become much more something that drives bottom line activity if. It's not uh it's not just kind of regulation saying, you know, you must uh you must do this, you must do that. It's governments making steps beyond that using fiscal policy to support ESG goals and particularly related to E. So that's that's what provides a lot of opportunity on the on the time dimension side of things, is that, you know, I uh I'll give you the the Coles Note punchline of uh of the forthcoming paper. And it's essentially that uh, we believe through our research is that there's there will not be a trade off between risk and return any negative trade off by adopting esg and that you can make essentially a lot of portfolios that are have the same factor components as the parent index the non esg index you know pretty easily even using some more uh, some brute exclusion techniques so it's something that you know regulators seem to be demanding. It's something that uh, you know, clearly if you look across the industry there's there's interest in and it's something that's going to be affecting bottom line results for corporates more and more.
2: I have a sorry, I have one more question, but this is also something I've always wondered. So in journalism, as you know, we get a lot of feedback on our work. Like it, I think it's one of the few jobs where you published to a relatively large audience and you can get feedback almost instantaneously, either through comments on your stories or through social media or people emailing you or whatever, what sort of feedback do you get as an investment strategist and what sort of um, uh, what? Oh, consequences. Yes. Okay. So what sort of consequences happen? Like if you get something wrong or right, like do clients, come come back to you and say, like, this call was mm. incorrect? Why why did you think that? Or, you know, does anything happen if you actually get something wrong? I know Joe and I were joking earlier about how when you're a journalist, you don't always have to be right. But presumably, when you're doing this professionally, uh, <laughs> you want to be reasonably, um, well, you said it earlier, you want to be reasonably accurate in your thinking.
3: What What gives you feedback? Is the market kind of instantaneously and always is, is giving you feedback on, uh, on whether you're, you're right or wrong. And that'll, you know, that'll play out over time. But, uh, for us, it's very important. You know, this is, this is a results oriented business, but it's very important to keep process in mind at, at all times. And that's, you know, that's why it's you know important to, to build a lot of consensus for new positions and, and new trades and have them, you know, thoroughly vetted, uh, battered around. So that's, the, the consequence is everyone having buy-in, everyone having understanding of the, of the factors, of the milestones that could affect a trade when you go into it and, and being able to monitor it. So you know when the conditions are shifting, you know when there's been a thesis violation, or you know when things have gone according to plan, but the price just hasn't. So the, the way to avoid or you know, to kind of mitigate quote-unquote consequences is uh, the dissemination of information. In a, in a manner that allows a lot of these these priors or these questions to be challenged before you actually do it, and then it's just you know then it's just a matter of, of monitoring and figuring out are things going according to plan, are they not, and and why, and if you've done the work beforehand, you uh, you know you have a pretty good base to, to go up of there.
0: Well, Luke, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be um, great to be reunited, and hopefully we'll see you again one day uh, in person. But congratulations. And uh, we miss you. And this was a
3: fantastic and fascinating discussion. Real pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on.
2: Luke, we're all so proud of you. Yeah,
3: seriously. Oh, thank you guys very much. It's, uh, you know, it's so great to be speaking to you guys again. And hopefully, you know, a a karaoke at some time when Tracy's back in New York.
0: Yeah, (laughs) we'll definitely do it. Take care, Luke. Uh, Tracy, I thought that was great. Catching up with Luke. Been uh, way too long, obviously. Uh, I really liked everything. That last answer to your question, I thought, was, like, super interesting. Like, how they think about, like, feedback and uh, anticipating. Just everything related to, like, process was super interesting to me.
2: Yeah, I've always wondered, I guess, how you're evaluated um, in a position as an investment strategist. Like, is it how good your research and your thinking was around a certain investment decision or is it based on absolute returns? Like, even if you had the smartest thesis in the world, could you get a, a really bad year because the market just goes against you and you're considered unlucky? Like, you know, all those perma bears, I'm not saying Luke is a perma yeah. bear at all, but you no, know, the perma neither. bears who for the yeah, past 10 years have been, you know, talking about how stocks are going to crash and things like that. And yeah. they're very, very popular. They have a huge following yeah. among buy side and journalists. But if you looked at, you know, if you actually did what they were telling you for the past 10 years, you probably would have missed out on a lot.
0: Well, you would have made money for about five minutes last March. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, that's, that's true. something I guess. No, yeah. I. I totally agree. I also thought, like, Luke did a really good job, like, clarifying a couple of really interesting thoughts in my mind. One is that discussion of um Chinese bonds, which I think we should probably do an episode on soon, just like the Chinese government bond market and how it's mm-hmm. become this big international asset class. His explanation of why the money's is rush- rushing in, how it sort of is serving as this sort of counter cyclical um, anchor, super interesting uh, topic and very well explained. And also this idea of like the value versus growth valuation gap and this idea that like in a world of more fiscal activism, um, maybe you could put it in a world where policymakers uh, react more aggressively to cap downside, that that then sort of like cuts off the left tail of value companies' earnings and you potentially get this sort of valuation re-rating. Super interesting topic. And I think that'll be something to like keep watching going forward to see if like what we call value stocks, meaningfully reprice on changes in uh, expected uh, policy in exchanges, changes in the expected fiscal policy stance.
2: Yeah. But just on that point, Luke's, you know, the way Luke framed it, this idea of not trying to call the tipping point or the big change in markets, but actually waiting and seeing how durable the shift towards fiscal actually is. I thought that was a really important point. And I know markets are always racing ahead to identify significant turning points. But maybe this is, in fact, a moment where you sort of step back and say, okay, we've had the big, big stimulus bill. Now we actually see whether it translates into growth and whether or not it might translate into inflation.
0: Do you think a journalist could get away with that? It's like, what do you have coming today? And it's like, just relax. I'm just waiting to see how this all plays out. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm not I, I'm not rushing the next narrative. Just just let me let's just see how this plays out. I don't think that would work. I don't think that would uh, fly.
2: I think we're in danger of uh, getting into a conversation about the pros of short term horizons yeah. versus long term horizons. So we better step all away right. quickly.
0: Maybe we should leave it there. Then. Yeah,
2: let's leave it there. Yeah. Okay, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the Stalwart. Follow Luke Kawa on Twitter. He's at LJ Kawa. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through? I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal.
1: And Tracy Alloway.
0: And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about, Money Stuff, the podcast.
2: That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.